So uh, also just a reminder, this is a Q&A series. So as I teach, feel free to um, text in questions, um, something you don't understand, maybe a thought that you have regarding this passage. Uh, it's a Q&A series, so awakenqna at gmail.com. We're going to take the last several minutes um, of our time today looking at some of those questions. Uh, so Mark 10, 17 through 22 is uh, where our passage is at. So go ahead and, and flip over there. Mark 10, 17 through 22. And I'm just going to read it one time so we can hear it in its entirety. And also, uh, the passage is also located in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. So this is a story that, that is remarked on by all three um, of the early um, gospel writers. Three out of the four remark on this. So let's start again. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor. You have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was stunned at this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So what we're going to do is we're just going to, um, verse by verse, really walk through um, the context of this passage. We're really going to arrive at some of the behind-the-scenes things that are going on. But let's just start in verse 17. Again, the text says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So real quick, the journey that Jesus is going on, it's saying Jesus is getting ready to go on a journey. So he's probably in this village square, this, this square of a, a, a household that he and his disciples are, are staying at, the disciples around him, there's a crowd coming, and he's getting ready to go on a journey. And all three gospel writers have this journey as Jesus, ready, is, get, Jesus is getting ready to go to the climactic confrontation in Jerusalem the one where he's going to enter in triumphantly, be betrayed, be crucified. This is the journey that Jesus is setting out. And this journey, we know the disciples don't really want him to go on. The last time he was in Jerusalem, they tried to arrest him and kill him. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This rich young ruler comes. And he runs up to Jesus. And he kneels before Jesus. Now, can you picture a man of wealth in our day and age? A man dressed in Wall Street's finest? A man running up and causing a scene and dropping to his knees and saying, Good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? This is an unseemly position for a man of wealth. In status. Rulers 
don't do this unless they're showing obedience to someone else. And he proclaims this question to Jesus. What must I do to have eternal life? And you have to know, and you have to be wondering that does this rich young ruler truly think that Jesus is a good teacher? Does he think something more? Is he concerned? Because again, in this time, it was well known. There's a confrontation coming between the rulers of which this young man is one of them and Jesus. And the rulers have all the earthly power and are planning to kill Jesus. There's a confrontation coming. And so this ruler asked this question. He wants to know what he needs to do to have eternal life. So what does that really mean from a Jewish perspective? So Jews in this time, they believed in there's going to be this day of reckoning. This day from God where the nations who worship false gods, the nations who are oppressing and subjugating and exploiting Israel, the nations will be judged and humbled and brought low, and Israel will be restored. And that the wealth and worship and wonder of the one true God would be on display through the Messiah, through the agent God chose to restore the fortunes of Israel. This is what it meant to have eternal life, that they would be there when the Messiah came and they would reign with him. All would be set right. But it was a very national dream. It was a particular dream located to one people, the Jews. And he's asking this, what can I do to be a part of this? Verse 18, Jesus, in some ways, I think, sees through some of this, and he gets to the heart of it right away. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good but one God. Jesus immediately confronts this rich young ruler's kneeling and obedience before him and by asking, do you truly believe that I am a good teacher? What's remarkable is in Greek, this good teacher is didaskale agathe. It is the singular and only time good teacher is used in all of Jewish literature. The reason why is because Jews don't call someone a good teacher. There is one good teacher, and he truly is the one and only God of Israel. And so we're thrust back in this passage. Is this rich young ruler confessing that Jesus is the good teacher, that he's divine? Jesus makes a simple declaration. No one is good except for God. He doesn't start to launch into a Trinitarian defense because he is going somewhere and he wants to invite us to where he's going. And so in verse 19, 
He invites us to know the commandments. Isn't that weird? And he tells this rich young ruler, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. These 10 commandments, Jesus reaches back into God's revelation to Israel. A revelation that this rich young ruler prided himself and staked his identity upon. He reaches back into those. Have you been living according to these commandments? And again, these six out of 10, there were 10. Jesus references these six. All of these dealt with not necessarily theological implications, but very practical implications. Loving your neighbor. So verse 20. This rich young ruler said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Notice what is absent. This rich young ruler drops good teacher. And he just says teacher. That is very common. There are many rabbis traveling around with interpretations from the Torah and from the law and from the Ten Commandments. So this rich young ruler just says teacher. It's kind of like, I think sometimes when we walk in to a place, whether it's uh, continuing education credit, whether it's a sermon, whether it's a TED talk, whether it's something else, whether it's a weeble, and we say, I already knew that information. Our own pride and ignorance is on display sometimes because we've not humbled ourselves to truly learn and we've just said, I already know this stuff. And this is what this young ruler is saying. Teacher, I already know this stuff. And he says, I've kept these things from my youth or out of my youth. And this is profound, especially when we consider what Jesus has taught on the commandments and how the commandments are a matter of the heart and a matter of what you're thinking. And this young man has kept all of them from his youth. Wow. Wow. That is incredible obedience. And the question is, is it, is it fake obedience? Is he lying? I don't think it is because the text continues. Verse 21, and looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The first thing is Jesus looks at him. You see, we've talked about there's probably a, a, a crowd in this courtyard. The disciples are around. People are gathered around to say goodbye. It could even be tearful. Jesus is going back to Jerusalem. A confrontation, a showdown is going to take place. And here's this rich, young ruler, stranger here and Jesus all of a sudden narrows his gaze. And this is what Mark gives us from the text. This is, this is some of the Greek. It's not just Jesus looks at him. There's words in Greek for that. But it's emblepsis. Jesus looks directly at him. This is an intimate gaze. 
This is a serious gaze. This is even a gaze of love. And how do we know that? Because the very next clause, Jesus loved him. Here is a young man, a rich young ruler who Jesus has found, who has kept the Ten Commandments, who's been obedient. And Jesus loves him. The same word again used for love in this text is the same word when Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water and the heavens open up. It says that God loves Jesus, his son. And so here we see the same word being used. Jesus loves this young ruler. This is rich love from the son to us. It's not a comparison love. Does Jesus love me more than this person? It's a direct, intimate, beautiful love that catches the eye of the beholder. And Jesus says, you just lack one thing. One thing. And then Jesus gives four commands. Go, sell all, give to the poor, follow me. Four commands. For those of us sometimes who think that um, Jesus doesn't give commands or that Jesus is like this warm and fuzzy and care-pare God who just loves us, he wants to wrap us up in a big bear hug, absolutely he does that. But he gives four commands. He gives four commands. And here's what I don't think we're seeing. You see, the rich young ruler just says, what can I do to inherit this eternal life, this belief in a messianic age, this belief that I'm gonna have wealth and property and riches all the more when the Messiah comes back and I wanna make sure that this guy might be the Messiah and I'll follow him if that's the case. But the very one thing that he's expecting is being called out and challenged by Jesus and, saying, and Jesus saying, you've gotta give up all of that because see, Jesus knows that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's gonna enter triumphantly into the city. He knows he's gonna confront the religious authorities. He knows he's gonna have communion with his disciples. He knows that he's gonna be betrayed. He knows that he's gonna be tried unjustly, that he's gonna be crucified and that he's gonna be resurrected once again. And he's inviting the rich young ruler to walk with him, to experience that, and all the more importantly, to witness that. Jesus Christ is inviting this young ruler who has much property and much possessions to become an eyewitness to the resurrection of the Messiah. This is what's going on in the passage. And this is what happens. In verse 22, but he was stunned at this demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions. So again, um, looking into some of the Greek word choices that the gospel writer gives us, we get the word stunned. Some of your translations say he was saddened. Um, it's the word just stugnasas. And what's interesting, though, is it, it actually is used a lot in Greek to describe the weather. When the weather was gloomy, 
and cloudy. You didn't want to go outside when a thunderstorm was approaching. It was stugnasas. And so we see that Jesus tells this young man what he must do, and he immediately is gloomy. It's kind of like, um, you know, when you're watching any sporting event, but we'll just pick football in general. There's this climactic finish. There's this come-behind victory. There's this underdog win, and it's amazing. And if your team won, you were like, yes, this was awesome. And if your team lost, you're gloomy. Your day's thrown off. It's kind of like when Auburn runs back a short kickoff attempt against Alabama and goes to the national championship. <laughs> if you're an Alabama fan, you are in gloom and, and, and utter disbelief. Was that too soon, Tim? <laughs> Sorry, brother. There is great despair and gloom. Your team has lost. In, in many ways, you're depressed. And I think we can begin to connect all of a sudden with what's going on in this story by the emotions that this young ruler starts to experience. Again, the first is this gloom. The second word, he went away grieving. He went away with grief. Lupomenos in Greek is this idea that he is affected. There is a blanket of grief and despair that is not coming from within, but has settled on him. He's affected by great grief. And we struggle to understand that. You're grieved because you got to say goodbye to some of your possessions. We experience tremendous grief, the loss of loved ones, when something doesn't quite turn out the way it was supposed to be. This is the things that affect us by grief. And so here we have this rich young ruler who's affected by gloom and despair and grief. And I would argue that he is now in a state of utter depression. And can't we connect right here that when we are depressed, it is very difficult to follow Jesus Christ. When we are perhaps depressed by what it looks like to follow God, it can be very hard to obey the commands of God that he gives. And the young ruler, it says, he went away, he walked away because great were his possessions and property. Oftentimes we can walk away when we're depressed, we can walk away from Christ. And what we see here is that a true indicator of this man's wealth, of this man's theology, of this man's possessions was that it was in the material world. And he just wanted to make sure when he runs up kneeling at the feet of Jesus, that if Jesus really was the Messiah, would he be able to keep all of his possessions? In Jewish culture, again, your possessions and your material wealth were a sign of blessing and favor from God. You were doing something right in your spiritual walk. If you were struggling, if you were poor, if you didn't have a whole lot of possessions, it meant that God was somehow angry at you. And I can't help but think in our 
American, or I should say Americana theology, the level of possess and success, possessions and success we have in our career, we might somehow do the same thing that this rich young ruler does and misconstrue that somehow as God's blessings. And Jesus Christ is trying to separate that for this rich young ruler because the destination and the journey that Jesus Christ is inviting him on is to witness the resurrection. You see, the journey and destination that Jesus Christ is inviting us on is the same thing, to witness the resurrection. So back to our three questions that we talked about. What's really going on with possessions and the poor? What is our interpretation of the text and how do we apply this to our lives? I think what we can say is what's really going on is actually the gospel message is central and it's encapsulated by this story. The possessions and poor, again, are ancillary matters. Salvation is central. Now, how do we know this? Fortunately for us, the greatest commentary on scripture is not written by dudes from seminary, praise the Lord. The greatest commentary on scripture is actually scripture itself. In Mark 10, 23 through 27, Jesus provides the own commentary because this rich young ruler, he was in gloom, and he was in grief, and he was in despair, but the crowds around him and the disciples witnessing this whole event, they're in utter astonishment and amazement because they don't get it either. And Jesus says this. Look, Jesus looked around and said to his disciple, how hard it is for those of wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his word. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. And here the salvation message is unfurled from these six verses of an encounter that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. You see, Jesus directly, lovingly gazes into his eyes. This isn't a conversation with the crowd. This is a direct conversation with the rich young ruler. Jesus is calling him to follow him, to follow the Messiah. And he's doing that out of the great riches of his love. Jesus is inviting and asking us the same thing. The riches of God's loving kindness is on display through scripture, through the spirit of God. And Jesus is inviting us to believe in him and to follow him. And we see the depravity of man on display in this rich young ruler who would rather grasp and hold on to his possessions versus following Jesus Christ. Um, what's interesting, and here's something, here's a reason why we know that actually Jesus is okay with possessions. Again, it was an individual contextual call to this one person. Later on, and it's even 
interesting that Mark could have included in this gospel that there's this apposition because Peter says, well, what about us, Jesus? Later on in this chapter, what about us? We left everything and followed you. And she said, don't worry. In the Messianic age, in the age where Jesus Christ has been raised to life and is sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning, the age that we now live in, he said, you're gonna have houses and possessions and brothers and sisters, etc." With persecutions, Jesus adds. I think sometimes we also tend to skip over that in our Americana theology. And Jesus clearly says, you're gonna have these things with persecutions, but Jesus is not against possessions. He's not against prosperity. In fact, if anything, Jesus wants to see the prosperity and possessions as a beautiful pleasure that we enjoy, as good gifts from God, as we funnel them towards his kingdom and towards a rich life that we have in him not a rich life in amassing possessions. So we're gonna talk about a couple uh, takeaways from this. Um, but if you have questions, just awakenqna at gmail.com. Um, Feel free to um, uh, send in a few questions, um, thoughts. But let's pivot to the possessions and the poor because Jesus does bring them up. And I think it's very valuable that we have a theology that. So the first thing is this, the greatest treasure Jesus gave to the poor was not the paltry sums left over from his money bag. Yes, Jesus and the disciples, he was a rabbi, he walked around and toured the countryside and they had money. People gave them money and, and in that time, if you're a rabbi, if you were a ruler, you would show your benevolence by, you know, sometimes giving to the poor. Jesus didn't give the poor paltry sums of money. He also didn't heal every sick person, but this is what he did. He gave the poor his presence, his love, and an invitation into his identity. I think perhaps that's the greatest thing we can give the poor as well. Our presence, our love, and an invitation into our identity as the beloved people and church of God. Again, regarding possessions, Jesus directed his gaze intently on the rich young ruler and was unconcerned about the crowds. Are your possessions separating you from eternal life, from belief in Christ, from following Christ, is the singular ask that Jesus Christ, he's not asking you to take stock of your possessions, compare yourself with others, do like a, a comparing yourself to the Joneses spreadsheet. This is a personal, individual matter that he engages in all of us with our possessions. No one's here twisting your arm about getting rid of possessions. Jesus Christ is lovingly looking in your face and asking you, are your possessions separating you from eternal life? So a couple, um, a couple quick stories. Um, our college leadership team is going through a pretty cool book by um, Shane Claiborne called The Irresistible Revolution. Um, if you don't know who Shane Claiborne is, he goes from the streets of Philly to the streets of Calcutta to the streets of Baghdad to hang out with the poor and to minister to them. He's kind of one of those urban, crunchy, granola renewal guys that says, hey, I want to go to where the least of these are and I want to bring the love of Jesus to them. It's a calling. 
and it's great, phenomenal book. But one of the things that he does in a very prophetic way is he challenges people reading the book and he challenges America. Maybe the reason why we're not caring for the poor is we don't even know the poor. We don't even know a poor family. We haven't even entered into a relationship with someone because our schedule and times and travel leagues and everything that we're doing prevents us from even being around the poor. So even as a, a church and as a college leadership team, one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to just be around the poor more. Know the poor more, be able to meet needs, have relationships with them. So one of the college girls um, even shared with me, I go, I go to Walmart a lot and there's poor people by Walmart all the time and I don't know what to do. I don't wanna just give them money. And so we talked about that for a while and said, you know, one of the things you can do is just ask them, can I meet one of your needs and go into Walmart and buy you something that you need? And we kind of settled on, that would be hard to do, especially in our fast-paced lives, but that would be something that we could do with dignity and love and even ask to pray for them afterwards. So we agreed on doing that, and that'd be something that she could do. Three days later, I'm with my eight-month pregnant wife. We're in Walmart, and a guy comes up to me and says, hey, can you help me out? I need some money. So now I'm like <laughs> on the hook. Um, and you know, you're just like, I got my pregnant wife here. Why are you asking me this? And it was just a reminder, Andrew, slow down and know this guy. And so I said, sure, I can't give you money, but I can help you. What can I get for you? It just rained about 30 minutes ago. He was soaking wet. And he just said, honestly, I could use like some shorts and a shirt that's dry. And I said, cool, let's go in and diet together. So he bought some shorts and a shirt, prayed over him. And he's looking for a job, and I told him about a job fair coming up, and I don't know what else happened, but I felt like I was able to care for the poor. I think another thing we need to look at, too, in our lives is, do we have lifestyle creep? As we get raises and as things happen in our lives, as we want to, like, spend more and buy more, are our possessions filling up our calendar, our mind, all of these things can distract us from even knowing the one true God and reading the revelation that he has given us in scripture. Our budget sometimes can reveal our theology. Also, if your possessions trump your worship and your witness, it can be a very dangerous place to be. And I intentionally use that word trump because it seems like we are in a season of economic recovery. Things are looking okay. And I don't want to place stock in that. But are we allowing the goodness that we're experiencing right now as America to trump our care for the poor and are really thinking through how we're advancing the kingdom of God because Jesus has invited us with him to experience the resurrection and to draw others into that. Is that ultimately the end goal of our budget and to see that happen. Again, this is not twist your arm, make you feel guilty. This is Jesus Christ lovingly looking into you and asking, what will you do? It challenges us. Maybe it should challenge you. Hey, maybe I don't watch Netflix for a little bit while I go and figure out my budget. Last at Awaken, um, we've always wanted to encourage our community to give, um, but we don't make that a showy thing. We don't pass around plates or offering buckets. 
We have a box in the back that we encourage you guys um, as partners to tithe to, as, as just attenders to give to. If you're visiting, there's no, no arm twisting. Um, one of the things that we that started this year, though, is we, we wanted to have a heart and a concern for the poor and to helping our community and even helping people in the midst of rough times. And so we actually started a benevolence fund. And I just want to also say thank you guys. Through this benevolence fund, we've been able to, to see over $6,000 come in that has helped families get back on their feet. That's through your faithful giving and generosity. And that's what I love because, again, as I shared earlier, I've, got, I've had a little free time the last couple of weeks. And one of my free times was on Facebook. And I just, you know, you run across that thread that's like, Jesus was a socialist. Let me make something very clear. Socialism is the forcible redistribution of wealth. Jesus was not a socialist. Yes, Jesus was a capitalist. No, Jesus was not a capitalist. He was not. See, capitalism is the leftover redistribution of wealth. That's the two poles that we live in. Jesus was neither. Jesus Christ invited us generously and sacrificially to redistribute wealth to the least of these. That is the economic system that Jesus Christ had for this world. Let's tackle some questions and then um, um, we'll close in prayer. No questions? Man, that's exciting. Um, check one more time just in case there's a last one. I know, I know I'll probably have a conversation with Tim about Alabama football and why I had to use that analogy. Awesome. Hey, I'd like us to do one thing. Um, I'd like us to close in prayer. And, and instead of me closing in prayer, um, I'd like to actually invite us all to stand. You guys can stand. And uh, to close in prayer together. And um, I'm just gonna kind of walk off the stage and, and kick us off. Um, but let's read this aloud together. Um, so give me one second to walk off and, and we're, we'll close with this. And then um, Larry, and um, we'll, we'll close our time. Let's pray. God, my prayer is that I would walk away knowing the love of Christ and his invitation to follow him so I may be refreshed in the identity, belovedness, and delight that God has for me and to locate myself in his story, not my possessions or property. Good morning. Welcome to Awaken. Thank you for praying. You may seat. Thank you. Good assumption. I would talk for three minutes, so it's worth sitting. Um, yeah, welcome to Awaken. Good to see everybody. I got to meet a lot of new people at church today. It was a lot of fun. I did a meet and greet time. I was introduced myself. I'm like, oh, my name's Larry. And I got to meet like uh, some new folks. And then uh, 
One guy was like, oh, my name's Larry, too. Really? Your name's Larry? That's great. I never meet any Larrys. No, man, my name's Trey. Whose name is Larry? Like, like, it's like, people were actually called Larry? I thought you were kidding. Like, your name's Larry? Larry? Trey, just so you know, bro, I got three Larrys in my family. Um, we just keep rocking it into the 21st century, a name that doesn't make any sense. Um, anyways, good to know you. You know, what's actually really funny about that, Andrew, is we were talking on the, on the way in, and I think the worship set was really great, and there was a lot of, um, uh, I, I forgot the one song called, but like about identity, and then you were kind of chatting about here, and as I think through work and uh, my plays in the community and all the things that we do, it's like, man, my identity sometimes rips me apart from my true identity and what God's calling me to, and 